Hello everyone and welcome to episode 20 of the Mimetic Exegete podcast. I'm your host, Simon Skidmore. Today we continue our study of John's Gospel as we pick up the narrative in chapter 12, which tells the story of three main characters. Lazarus, who Jesus raised from death in the previous chapter. Mary, Lazarus's brother who anoints Jesus' feet with her hair. And Judas, one of Jesus' followers who responds to Mary's actions in this story. As we read through the first couple of verses of chapter 12, we consider what we have to learn from each of these people and their experiences. So let's begin by reading from John chapter 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus has raised from the dead. They gave him a dinner there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, and anointed his feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to keep for himself what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. So first, let's consider Lazarus's role in this passage and the greater gospel tradition, because Lazarus also pops up in Luke chapter 11. Well, maybe not Lazarus, this same character, but there's a character in a parable in Luke chapter 11 called Lazarus. And this Lazarus is a poor man who gets locked out and mistreated, ignored by a rich man who fails to show any care or concern for Lazarus. The rich man doesn't even acknowledge Lazarus' existence. As far as the rich man is concerned, Lazarus might as well be dead. Now, assuming that Jesus' audience know this parable, because Luke's gospel is often dated earlier than John, this story seems to be a reversal of Lazarus' fortunes. That is, the story that we're reading now in John's gospel seems to turn Lazarus' fortunes around. Perhaps Judas's feigned concern for the poor is meant to get us thinking along these lines, to remind us of the poor man, of Luke chapter 17. Now I'm not suggesting that it's the same person in this story as in Jesus's parable, but for the attentive reader who's paying close attention, they might be reminded of this parable which happens in Luke's gospel. In this parable, Lazarus is locked outside and denied any sort of hospitality by the rich man. While the rich man is feasting inside, Lazarus is locked outside in the dark. And as you may recall in the last podcast, this is where we first met Lazarus in John. In John chapter 11, Lazarus is sick. He dies and is laid in the darkness of a tomb. But the tomb is not where Lazarus remains. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead 
and calls him out of the tomb into the light. In this story, we now read that Lazarus is enjoying a feast inside at the table with Jesus and others. Not only this, but this whole incident takes place in Bethany, which in Hebrew is literally translated as my house. That is God's house. In other words, Lazarus, who was once locked outside and rejected by others, consigned to the darkness of death, is now feasting inside God's presence, inside God's very house. This reversal of Lazarus's fortunes is another cue to the attentive reader that God's creative wisdom is breaking through into our world as those who are kicked to the margins are invited in to enjoy new life and prosperity in this new messianic age. So now let's consider this narrative from Mary's perspective. Mary takes the most expensive item she owns, a jar of perfume, and pours it out at Jesus' feet. John tells us that the whole house was filled with the fragrance of this perfume. Now we can't help but be reminded of the priests who used to burn incense inside God's house, that is the tabernacle or the temple, and fill it with a pleasant fragrance. In John's Gospel, now we see Mary pour out incense to fill Bethany, that is God's house, with a pleasant fragrance. So Mary here appears to be performing a role of the priest inside Bethany, that is the house of God. But Mary is a new type of priest. In contrast to the priest who served in the established religious order of Jesus' day, Mary is a female, and she is almost certainly not part of a priestly family. She's not inducted into the priestly order through ceremonies and rituals, but merely through her willingness to pour out everything she has at the feet of Jesus. We will see this theme resurface later, but for now... Let's just note that in this new kingdom order which Jesus is bringing, there is no hierarchy of a high priest, of priests, Levites, which sets the whole religious structure apart from the rest of the people. The people are not divided by whether they're clean or unclean, by their nationality or religious ritual status. But in Jesus' kingdom, those who have been marginalized and oppressed and kicked to the edges are invited into the most holiest places within God's house. In the temple of Jesus' day, only the high priest could enter once a year on the Day of Atonement to enter into God's presence. But here we see Mary gaining access to the most sacred of places and performing the priestly duty of the high priest. Now, people are anointed with oil for various reasons within the Bible, but anointing is most commonly associated with burial in the Gospels. In this passage, Jesus confirms that Mary has has anointed him in preparation for burial. While some people might view this as a beautiful thing, 
Others view it as a waste of precious resources. For example, Judas Iscariot implies that the woman's actions are extremely wasteful because the perfume could have been sold for a lot of money. Rob Bell actually has a really nice take on this passage. If you want to hear more on this, you can look up episode 17 of the Robcast, which is entitled, What to Do with the Waste. But for now, let me summarize the basic idea, at least as I understand it. Sometimes we put a whole lot of effort into things and they don't turn out the way we hope. What do we do when we're disappointed? What do we do when we pour our effort, everything we have into a pursuit and it fails? It comes up empty. It seems like we've wasted all our time and energy. We're tempted to think to ourselves, this is a waste. What a waste of time and effort. I could have directed all that money and energy in a different direction. And that's a Judas type attitude. So Judas, the third person who we're going to look at in this passage is a thief. And he's the thief who comes to steal our joy and peace. While Judas feigns care and concern for the poor, he is actually a thief who steals from the poor. Do you see? Judas is pretending to be pious, to be upright. He's pretending to be a paragon of virtue, but he's actually the opposite. Jesus shows us a better way. Jesus looks at the perfume which has been poured out, and rather than chastising the woman for wasting this precious resource, he sees it as a beautiful thing. So next time you're in that place of failure and regret, remember Mary and her perfume. Just like Mary's perfume, your time, effort, money was not wasted just because things didn't turn out the way you planned. But everything you poured out is like a precious perfume that is filling God's house with a beautiful fragrance. I really like this, this take on this story because it seems to be a really powerful way of confronting our failure and regrets and reframing them as an act of love and devotion. I've got a different take on this, but I'll return to that a little bit later. For now, let's dig a little bit deeper about Judas' role in this narrative. Judas is not just a thief, but he's also the accuser. Through his accusation, Judas invites those around him to also attack the woman. He's inviting the other people to imitate his accusation. If they do, if the others around him join Judas in accusing the woman, those people will band together and expel the woman from their presence. She may be labelled a wasteful woman who threatens their existence by her inconsiderate, lavish actions. Moreover, this gesture shows a flagrant disregard for the poor and perhaps even those within their own community who are struggling to make ends meet. After all, Mary could have sold that very costly perfume and use the money to feed hungry mouths, maybe even hungry friends of theirs who are not doing so well financially. But before others can imitate Judas's accusation, before everyone starts joining Judas in accusing the woman, Jesus steps in. He rebukes Judas and reminds everyone that Mary's actions are praiseworthy. 
In so doing, Jesus halts the scapegoat mechanism before it takes root. You see, that's what Judas is trying to do. He's trying to get everyone to join forces, to band together, to persecute Mary. He's trying to get everyone to imitate his persecution of Mary so that they can cast her out of the community. Perhaps we can learn something, though, from Jesus' example when he comes, steps in, and stops this process in its tracks. Rather than falling prey to the temptation to imitate Judas's accusations, we can choose to expose the accusations for what they are, their attempts to vilify and persecute those who are on the margins. Let's read on now from verse 9. When the crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd had come to the feast And they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the very King of Israel. And Jesus found a donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. The narrator tells us that more and more people are witnessing this great sign which Jesus has performed, raising Lazarus from the dead. In response, the people welcome him to the feast as their Messiah who has come to liberate him because that's what people would do. They would go out to meet a emperor who had conquered a new foreign territory and they would rejoice and welcome the emperor as their new lord. And this is exactly what the people are doing. Now, we're told that the chief priests are most unhappy about this development and that many people are coming to believe in Jesus because of Lazarus's resurrection. The religious leaders begin making plans to remove the evidence of Lazarus' resurrection by executing both Jesus and Lazarus in the hope that people will then stop coming to believe in Jesus. We learnt in the last chapter that the chief priests have decided to execute Jesus as their scapegoat in order to secure the nation's political stability and retain their privileged position of authority in the religious political machine. Now they realise that Lazarus is also a threat to their position of power, so they begin to make plans regarding his execution. Lazarus has also become a political scapegoat, even though his only crime appears to be that his very life bears testimony to Jesus' role as the divinely appointed Messiah and Son of God. You see, because the scapegoat is arbitrarily selected, 
their guilt or innocence is irrelevant. For the religious leaders, Lazarus' existence threatens the established religious order, and for that reason alone, he must be executed. Let's read on now from verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was born from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his soul destroys it, but whoever hates his soul in this world will protect it, which leads to the life of the age. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This development is particularly interesting because now we see Jesus' influence stretching beyond the world of the Jewish people to influence other peoples and cultures. Excited, Philip and Andrew run to tell Jesus about his multinational fame. In that moment, the possibilities of influencing the whole world must have gone through Philip and Andrew's minds. They begin to start fantasizing that they'll once they free Israel from Roman rule, they'll then go on to conquer the whole world. Perhaps they'll set up franchises all over the Roman Empire. Perhaps even they'll start their own empire. Andrew and Philip have their own desired object in mind. They want to rule the world. They want to be the oppressors. They want to be in charge. They don't want the boot of empire on their neck but they want to be the people pressing down the boot on the necks of others. Andrew and Philip all their lives have been oppressed by the Roman Empire. And now, suddenly when they've got a chance of being free, what do they want to do? They want to start their own empire. Why would they ever want to do that? They know how much they hated being ruled by the Romans. Why would they want to rule other people in the same way? because they are imitating Caesar's rule over the Roman Empire. They see Caesar and they want to become like Caesar, so they imitate him and the way he acts. But Jesus puts an abrupt stop to their fantasies when he starts talking about his impending death. Jesus tells his disciples that the time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. In other words, what Jesus is saying is true humanity is about to be revealed. While his disciples have aspirations of taking over the world through military conquest, Jesus suggests a better way forward. Jesus uses the imagery of a seed to describe our existence in the world. When viewed from a mimetic perspective, this seed represents our life on the mimetic treadmill. We are always striving, we are always straining for those desired objects which we think will make us complete, whole and happy. This draws us into rivalry with each other. We fight and contend for our desired objects in the hope that if we just try hard enough, then maybe that seed which we have been given will sprout and give birth to the reality which we crave. 
But as long as we remain on the hermetic treadmill, we will never find contentment. That seed will never sprout. It'll never germinate, but it will always remain a seed. It retains its potential to become so much more, but as long as we remain on the hermetic treadmill, it never will. No matter how hard we try, we cannot make that seed sprout unless we are willing to leave behind the old life on the mimetic treadmill. This old existence must die and fall to the ground before our full potential can be realized. It's this act of dying to the mimetic treadmill. That's how we discover true life. In the words of John's gospel, the life of the messianic age. This is how people who hate their life, that is their life on the mimetic treadmill, find true life elsewhere. And those who love their lives on the mimetic treadmill, like the religious leaders in John's gospel, will never experience the life of the age because they're stuck in mimetic rivalry with one another. Now that we've looked at Jesus' explanation of this seed which must fall to the ground and die, this idea that we have to leave behind our life on the mimetic treadmill before a new life can be conceived, let's go back and consider Mary's act of pouring out her perfume as an example of this process in her own life. Let's consider for a moment why Mary would have a very expensive bottle of perfume in the first place. No doubt at some stage Mary was seeking to become whole, to become complete, and she was looking around and she saw rich, powerful, successful people. They owned the bottles of perfume. These were the very people that she wanted to be a part of. She wanted to be part of those social circles so that she could be afforded the same social status and opportunities that came with that. So Mary decided she wanted to be just like those people. If she imitated those people, she too could become like them. And so she saved and scrimped until one day she had enough money to buy her own bottle of perfume. She hoped that when she invited people over, they would be impressed by her bottle of perfume, which she kept on the shelf in prime location so that everyone could appreciate it and everyone could see that Mary really was something, that she had made it, that she was rich, that she was successful. For Mary, this bottle of perfume was a symbol of status, which communicated her high financial and social standing. In our day, similar ideas might be communicated by other desired objects, such as a house, car, yacht, or even a lover. These are the objects which command our desires because we want to prove to everyone else that we are successful and affluent. We think that if we imitate people who have these things, we'll become like them and we'll become successful, powerful, affluent also. Like all of us, Mary was on the mimetic treadmill, desperately trying to prove her worth and value to herself and others around her. For Mary, her perfume was a symbol of the life on the mimetic treadmill. The perfume for Mary was the grain which must die and fall to the ground before she could experience the life of the messianic age. As Mary breaks open that perfume and pours it out of Jesus' feet, she steps off the mimetic treadmill. 
This is the seed which falls to the ground and dies. Mary has killed her dreams of attaining that status on the mimetic treadmill. As she does so, as she breaks her perfume, she breaks her attempts to attain this social status, the house of God is flooded with a beautiful fragrance. In this way, Mary puts aside her strivings on the mimetic treadmill and enters into her new life as a high priestess in the sanctuary of God's house, where she experiences the life of the Messianic age. Thanks again, everyone, for joining me on the Mimetic Exegete podcast. Remember, if you'd like to continue the conversation, you can do so on the Mimetic Exegete Facebook group. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you.